Well, good morning again. It's already been a pretty good day, huh? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I mean, we could almost just go home right now. I mean, we're not going to, but we could. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, you can open up there. We're going to start reading in verse 16. Today, we're starting a series called Kingdom Lifestyle. Now, as we start this series, I just want to give you a disclaimer. And you're going to hear this disclaimer over and over again throughout this series. In this series, we are diving into the nuts and bolts of what it means to live out the things we say we believe. What does it mean to live as if Jesus is actually king and to live in his ways? When we have conversations like this, sometimes we can inadvertently take guilt, shame, pressure, interpret this as legalism. But here's what I want to say. We live under the forgiveness of Jesus, but forgiveness does not mean there's not a right and wrong way to live. So as we pursue this, we know that we are forgiven. When we find places that we're like, I'm not doing that. I do not live up to that. The response is not guilt and shame. The response is because of the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus, I'm invited to live this out because I believe that it is right. Amen? I believe that it is the right way to live. Right means the good way to live, the best way to live, the healthiest way to live, the most beautiful way to live, the way to live that brings good, kindness, beauty, kingdom into the world. All right? So we're starting the series today. This message is really the foundation that everything else in this series is going to be built on. So we've got a pretty big chunk of scripture to read today. Let's jump in. Starting in verse 16, it says, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. I think it's funny that you can cast out a demon because you're annoyed at it. Whatever, it's in the Bible. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. When they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his, excuse me, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. 
The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. We're going to stop there for today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you for being able to celebrate dedication. We thank you for your word that is relevant and true and applicable for us today. And as is our regular practice, we ask that you would speak, that your words would be remembered. Anything that's from me or my ideas would be forgotten and fall to the ground, that your name would be the only name that we leave thinking about this morning. Amen. I know, I know, I know. I talk about coffee too much. I don't care. Um, I'm going to talk about coffee again this morning. And I, I might have told you this story before, but I really like this story, so I'm going to tell it again. I want to tell you about how I came to love coffee. Believe it or not, I have not always been a coffee snob or aficionado, depending on your feelings towards my posture towards coffee. Um, I, for a long time, when I was in high school and college, when I was growing up, I was just a normal American coffee drinker. I'd go to Waffle House, order coffee, because that's what you do at Waffle House, put cream and sugar in it, right? I would go to Starbucks, and I'd get a caramel macchiato. When I was in college, I would order the thing with as much caffeine in in it as I could get and put as much sugar in it as I could get, because coffee was a conveyance for caffeine that I could just flavor however I wanted, right? Make it not taste much like coffee, and then that's what I wanted. After I graduated college, I moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Yes, South Dakota is a weird place to get interested in specialty coffee. They have a lot of cows, a lot of corn, and really good coffee. I mean, it's crazy. Um, I moved there. I didn't know anyone. I got connected almost immediately to another youth pastor. His name was Dave Thomason. He was new to the area, so we started hanging out. We had some stuff in common, and Dave was a coffee guy. All right, if you think I love coffee, you should meet Dave. Dave loved coffee. So obviously, every time we would meet, we would meet at a coffee shop. There was a really great coffee shop, still one of my favorites to this day. It's called Cafea. If you are ever, for some reason, driving through South Dakota, make sure you stop in Sioux Falls and go to Cafea. Just keep that, keep that in mind. Write it down. Um, we would go to this coffee shop, and Dave was really, like, he, he wasn't pushy, right? He wasn't obnoxious, but he loved coffee, so he would talk about it. We'd go to this coffee shop, and he knew that I wanted something sweet, you know? And he was very, very gracious to me. So to start off with, he would say, all right, well, how about this? Why don't you try their hazelnut latte? You're going to love the hazelnut latte here, all right? They make the, ha- they make the syrup in-house. They toast their own hazelnuts. They're going to give you candied hazelnuts with the drink. You're going to love it. And I was like, okay, candied hazelnuts, I'm in. Give me that. So I ordered that, drank it, loved it. Next few times we got coffee, that's what I ordered. And then he would say, all right, well, you like the hazelnut latte. Well, let's try this. And he'd say, all right, well, they do this. They make this syrup. This balances with this this way. It's really unique. You're going to love it. And then the order would change and the order would change. Till finally, I worked my way up to a cappuccino. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, big moves. <laughs> I I go to the coffee shop and Dave's like I think you're ready for a cappuccino today. I'm like all right, let's do it. So he orders two cappuccinos. They come out and he says, "All right, well the espresso that they're using today, it's really beautiful. It's floral and light. You're going to taste these like jasmine notes and a, and a, and a soft acidity that's going to balance beautifully with the milk." And then we drink the drinks and he's like, "Do you taste that? Do you taste that jasmine note?" And I totally lied and said, "Yeah, absolutely. I taste it. I didn't taste anything." I'm not proud of it. It's just what happened. Um 
But I liked the drink. I didn't know why I liked it, and I liked it. So I started ordering cappuccinos, and I thought, hey, I'm a cappuccino guy, right? That's my drink now. Cappuccinos are what I like. And that's what I thought until about six months later, Jen and I went on a vacation to New Orleans. We went down to a place called Community Coffee, kind of a regional chain down there, and we walk in, and I think this is a cool vibe. I'm a cappuccino guy. This seems like a cool coffee shop. So I'll walk in, and I order a cappuccino. The drink comes out, and I take a drink, and I almost spit it out. It was bitter. It was burnt. The milk wasn't textured properly. The shot was pulled too long and too hot. It was just everything about it was wrong. And I, I got mad because I realized, thanks to Dave, I'm broken now. I, I can't like normal coffee anymore. Like, I didn't realize I was developing a taste for, like, the fancy stuff. And I realized just vaguely how much money over the next 10 years I was going to spend on specialty coffee. And that has been a self-fulfilling prophecy because, really, it's like gas and coffee. Like, those are the biggest, most expensive things in our house today. Um, 10 years ago, Dave ordered me a hazelnut latte. Ten years later, one of my primary passions is coffee. As we start this series, we're looking at this story of Paul and Silas because this story beautifully displays a framework of what it means to live a kingdom lifestyle. And this this framework is clear throughout the New Testament. It's clear throughout church history. I think as you hear it, you're going to say, oh, that makes sense. I've seen that exemplified in the lives around me. This story exemplifies it. It displays it beautifully. Before I can tell you what the framework is, I've got to say this, though. This is a framework, not a formula. A formula is this plus this equals this. A plus B equals C. In a formula, if I put in the right ingredients, I will get the right results in a timely manner. That's not what this is. There is no formula to the kingdom lifestyle. There is no formula to following Jesus. Jesus does not promise us some sort of flashy results if we just put in the right ingredients. What we do have is a framework in which partnering with the Holy Spirit, we build something that will ultimately lead to what we would call bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Impact, transformation, words like that. All right? This is a framework. It's not a formula. So here's what it is. If you're taking notes, I would recommend you write this down. Loyalty to Jesus and love of others lead to transformation in your circles of influence. One more time. Loyalty to Jesus and love of others lead to transformation in your circles of influence. This is the framework, and we're going to spend the next few weeks identifying how we build, what we build into that framework. But this is the framework that a life, a lifestyle that reflects the kingdom of God and the ways of Jesus is built on, all right? So you ready to dive in? So there are three parts to this. This is a three-point sermon. I don't often do three-point sermons, but that's what we got today, all right? First, loyalty to Jesus. Let me ask you a question that I'm probably not supposed to ask as a preacher. Have you ever met a Christian who was kind of obnoxious about it? It's okay, you can say yes, I'll get in trouble, you won't. Um, Sometimes Christians, we can kind of of get this sort of, um, maybe we would call it timeshare salesman in Gatlinburg, Tennessee vibe. Like, 
Like you're just trying to uh, buy some fudge and go to Dollywood and someone's trying to give you a presentation about something you're not interested in. Um, yeah. The uh, Barna Group, along with an organization called Every Home for Christ, recently did some research about evangelism in the United States. Why do people share, why do people not share the gospel? What are the barriers that keep people from sharing the gospel? Interestingly enough, one of the primary things that keeps the average Christian from telling someone else about Jesus is they don't want to be pushy. They don't want to be pushy. In other words, fake $20 bills and cheesy TV shows have co-opted our idea of evangelism. So that we assume that what it means to share the gospel or maybe to live in loyalty to Jesus is to be all up in people's space telling them about things that they are not currently interested in. And we largely, and I would say as a millennial who knows a bunch of millennials, especially the millennial generation, we've looked at that and said, I'm not interested. So we've bought out of the idea of evangelism. Now, one of the things that we also do, because we have this perception of sharing the gospel that's pushy and inauthentic, maybe, is I think we superimpose that over scripture. So we read maybe the book of Acts. And for some reason, we think that Paul and Silas or Paul and his partners are walking into a town, standing up on a street corner and shouting sermons. Or maybe we think that Paul is going through town, tapping people on the shoulder, asking them about the four spiritual laws or something like that. That's actually not what happens in Scripture. A few chapters earlier in chapter 14, we hear this phrase, Paul and I believe Barnabas at that time, Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue and preached as was their custom. So Paul and, Paul and Silas, Paul and his partners, would go to a new town, and they would go to the place where people preached. They would go to the place where people gathered to hear teaching, and specifically in the synagogues to hear Jewish teaching, and then they would preach about the Jewish Messiah. There's another story where they go into a place where the people worship many gods, and they've got an idol to an unknown god. Paul and Silas look around for an opportunity to share the gospel without being pushy or forceful, and they find a place where people are already interested in gods they don't know about, and they say, let us tell you about this God. We know the unknown God. Do you see how this works? They were going to places the gospel would naturally flourish, and then preaching in that place, making disciples of the people who were interested, and that was expanding in the cities. In fact, earlier in this chapter, the story says that, that Paul and Silas were in Philippi. On the Sabbath, they went to a place to pray. While they were there, they found some women who had gathered, and they began to speak with them. They had a conversation about the gospel. One of them was interested, and a church was planted in her house. Her name was Lydia. This is why I'm using the phrase loyalty. Loyalty to Jesus. Living a life of loyalty to Jesus. This is what we see Paul and Silas do. They are living with their life oriented around Jesus, prioritizing Jesus in such a way that their actions reflect the goodness of Jesus. Now, we know what loyalty means. You might have a friend that you would think of as loyal. Someone that you could call in the middle of the night. Someone that you're not afraid to have them watch your kids. Someone that you can count on. Someone that maybe if they heard a rumor about you, 
uh, you would trust that they would stand up and not be mean, not be condescending, but say, hey, that's not actually what that person's like. I know them. Someone that's going to have your back, right? Someone, let's say, that would text back or answer the phone or call you back or would show up to the party or would make space for you. Why? Because their life reflects the priority of the relationship. So loyalty means that we value something enough that it affects the way we spend our time. It affects the way we spend our resources. It affects the words that we speak. We've got brand loyalty. We've got loyalty to companies. We've got loyalty to coffee shops. We've got loyalty to restaurants. And I would go so far as to say that for most of us, the people in our lives who are close to us, they know which restaurants we're loyal to because they know where we go to lunch twice a week, twice a week. They know what concerts, they know what bands we like because we post about the bands on Instagram, right? They know the things that we're loyal to. They know the people that are most important, that we are loyal to in our lives because they come up in conversation. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Well, I was out with my wife. I was out with my friends. Who were you out with? Oh, my best friend from childhood, right? These conversations come up when we are loyal, which forces us to ask a question that is uncomfortable but important. If we were to evaluate our loyalty to Jesus the way we would evaluate someone else's loyalty to us, how do you think we would add up? Because in my experience in my own life, I've found myself often thinking, well, religion's just such a personal thing. I mean, uh, faith is just such a personal thing. I don't want to talk. I mean, you know, we'll talk about music. We'll talk about sports. But faith is just such a personal thing. You know, it doesn't really need to come up in my conversation. That's for them to believe, and it's for me to believe it's a personal thing. Just for the record, the belief that Jesus is God, died and rose again, is king over everything, has defeated sin, and is reconciling the world to himself, and will resurrect and restore all things in the end, is the opposite of a personal belief. It is a corporate belief. It is a belief about everything that expects everything that affects everything. Do you know what is a personal belief? Duke is my favorite basketball team. That's personal. Light roasts are my favorite coffee. I believe that's objective, but really it's personal. You see the difference? Now, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what it looks like for my life to reflect loyalty to Jesus. But in this sermon, we just have to ask the question, am I loyal? Does my commitment, my priority, my value of Jesus affect in any way the way I spend my time? Would the people around me say, you know what, CJ lives differently, and I think it might be because he believes in Jesus. Would they know in whose name I do what I do? Remember the the phrase where Jesus said, if you give a cup of water in my name? The water and the name are equally important. Loyalty to Jesus. Love of others. This story is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Here's what you've got to imagine. Imagine you are in jail. You have been unjustly imprisoned. All right? You're like chained up in jail. You're not supposed to be there. It's the middle of the night, and you are worshiping and praying. You are worshiping and praying, and an earthquake comes, and the earthquake somehow opens up all the prison doors and unlocks all of the chains but doesn't shake the building down on you. What do you think? Because I would think my prayers have been answered. I'm out of here. 
right? That I was just praying, now I'm set free, let's go. Every reasonable person would respond to that situation like this is obviously an answer to prayer. And listen, every reasonable person would have noticed the jailer with his sword and thought, it looks like he's going to kill himself. But then they would have thought, he's a henchman of the evil empire. Like literally Star Wars evil empire, the Romans fed families to lions for entertainment. Like it's real. They would have looked at him and said, bad guy, not my problem. Let's go. Even most of us as Christians would have responded like that because God just set us free. Here's what you've got to notice. Paul and Silas consistently lived a life of loyalty to Jesus, which means the jailer knew why they were there. The jailer knew the type of things they talked about they never actually shared the gospel to him until he asked. But he asked because they valued his life above their freedom. The jailer asked how to be saved when he saw that they would rather save his life and stay in jail than be free. Loyalty to Jesus and love of others. Our loyalty to Jesus will always express itself in sacrificial love of others, in valuing others above ourselves. Now, Christians historically and currently tend to do one of these really well or the others. But I want to tell you that this is a both and, not an either or. You cannot live loyal to Jesus without loving others. And you are not loving others holistically if the name of Jesus is never coming out of your mouth. At least in this world where we're not getting imprisoned for the name of Jesus coming out of our mouth. Loyalty to Jesus and love of others. A lot of us, a lot of times the church spends a lot of time and energy speaking truth and we orient our lives and we wear t-shirts and we listen to music and we put up pictures and we do everything we can to promote loyalty to Jesus. But I want to offer that if, if your life is continually reflecting the name of Jesus, but it's not manifesting in a compassionate, sacrificial love of other people, then you might not be loyal to who Jesus actually is. You might be loyal to your perception of who Jesus is. You might be loyal to the idea of Jesus not the person of Jesus. But millennials, my friends, my people, let me tell you, we have a really bad reputation for wanting to love people into the kingdom of God without ever using our mouths. We really like this quote that you might have heard by St. Francis. Preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. The problem is St. Francis never said that. It is a false quote. He never, ever said that, and he would never say anything like that because he was a preacher. He preached with words everywhere he went. You can't preach the gospel without using words. Now, I'm not saying that you are pushy. You can do this without being pushy. You can do this without being obnoxious. You can do this without turning Jesus into a product you're trying to sell. But if you're going to love people, they need to have an idea of whose name you are loving them in. They need to know why you are so loving. They need to look at your life and say, wow, they live differently, and I bet it's because of Jesus.
loyalty to Jesus and love of others. The last part is leads to transformation in our circles of influence. Transformation in our circles of influence. Oftentimes, I do, maybe you don't, but I get kind of overwhelmed by the idea of a kingdom lifestyle or the mission of God. We think of all of the people who are not saved. We think of all of the injustice going on in the world. We think of all of the people who are starving right now. And we can think, what in the world can I do about that? I'm not gifted. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not preaching. How can I have any part to play in this process? There's a word that's present in this story. It's a Greek word. It's also extremely common in the New Testament, and it's been promoted by people like Dr. Charles Arne, Tom Mercer, other missiologists. Missiologist is a fun word that just means people who study the mission of the church because we have to give words to everything. So these people have pointed to the word oikos. Oikos is often translated household. Now in our world, what that would mean is the people you have influence over. In that world, it would be the people that literally live in the house, the people who are affiliated with the house, the people who are the servants and the friends, the people who work for the head of household. All of the people under the influence of the house would be part of the oikos. In our world, what this means is that you and I have people that we have influence over. Let me say that one more time. You and I have people that we have influence over, or at least we have the opportunity to have those people. Some of us convince ourselves no one wants to take us seriously. Some of us convince ourselves that no one's going to listen to us. But I want to tell you, you are a human being made in the image of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, so you have the opportunity to have influence over people if you will step into that. This could be your book club. It could be your PTA. It could be your softball team. It could be the baristas at your favorite coffee shop. It could be your coworkers. It's any person that if you were to say, hey, I watched a movie this weekend, it was awesome. You've got to check it out, and you think they'd probably go check it out. You've got influence over these people. This is the place that we live out loyalty to Jesus and love of others. Because what we see throughout Scripture is that the gospel goes into people's households. If you read the life of Jesus, what you'll read is this household was discipled. This household came to faith. Earlier in this chapter, it says a girl named Lydia decided to follow Jesus and a church was planted in her household. And then in this story, it says that the jailer and his whole household were baptized. In other words, your responsibility is not to save the world. Your responsibility is to live out loyalty to Jesus and love of others within the people you already have influence over. And that is how the gospel goes forward. Every once in a while, we see moments where thousands of people come to Christ at a time. Those are exceptions, not the rule. But even in those exceptions, most people who showed up at a Billy Graham crusade were invited there by someone in their oikos. So the credit for the transformation is not the person with the microphone, it's the person who invited. Because the gospel goes forward in circles of influence. Sometimes that circle of influence is momentary. This is what we see when, when Paul and Silas have an opportunity to share the gospel with the jailer. Sometimes Jesus, sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us an opportunity. A couple months ago, um, I was at the hospital in the waiting room, and you know, everybody there had a mask on, but there was a, a lady there who was just clearly ca- crying through her mask. And 
honestly, I tried not to say anything to her for a long time because it's weird to talk to people with masks on and stuff. It's hard to strike up that conversation. But I, just, I felt really convicted, so I went over and talked to her. Turns out she had come to the hospital with her husband for what she thought was a normal procedure. When she got here, she found out the cancer was much worse and the procedure itself was life-threatening. And now she had to call all of his relatives and tell them the news while he was in the procedure. So I got to pray for her, and I gave her one of our church invite cards and said, if you guys need anything, my email address, you can find it here. Just reach out to us. Sometimes, now you've got to notice, I didn't talk to the other hundred people in the waiting room. Because there was just one person that the Holy Spirit created a little space for influence. Sometimes it's momentary. Sometimes we live life aware of the goodness of God and the Holy Spirit in us, and we notice the momentary opportunities where the Holy Spirit gives us influence. But every day, all the time, we have neighbors and coworkers and friends who are under our influence and need to see our loyalty to Jesus. So Dave Thomason. I realize this is a cheesy analogy. Just roll with me. It's a good analogy. I know it's cheesy. Dave was loyal to coffee. He loved coffee. Coffee changed the way he lived. He would orient meetings and make decisions based on his love for coffee, and if you were around him, you'd talk about coffee because he loved coffee. He also loved me. He was hospitable to me and generous to me in his relationship to coffee. He didn't push coffee on me. He didn't make me feel bad for not liking coffee the way he did. He just loved coffee, and he invited me into it. And more and more and more, over the course of approximately a year, I came to realize that his loyalty to coffee had given me a taste for something that I had never experienced before. Because he lived loyal, and in his loyalty showed me love. And guess what? Over the last 10 years, just about everybody I've spent time with has heard about coffee. <laughs> because I love coffee now. It's, it's changed. My, my wife likes coffee. My, my wife asks for lattes and pour-overs in the morning. I, there's a guy who's sitting out there doing security right now who once told me coffee was hot bean water, but a couple months ago when we went to co Cohesive Coffee, he ordered a vanilla latte, and that is discipleship, all right? That's oikos. That's transformation. Do you see how this works? Do you see how this gets lived out in our lives? When we live loyal to something... And we, our loyalty causes us to love people. The love and the loyalty innately bring transformation, except this isn't coffee, it's Jesus. So it's catalyzed by the living and active Holy Spirit that's in us because you have someone inside you who wants that person to know Jesus more than you do. And the Holy Spirit is going to create those opportunities. The Holy Spirit is going to give you influence. We have to be people who live loyal and loving. If you do that, the Holy Spirit will create influence. This is not oppressive. This is not a weight. This is not a burden. This is a joy. Because loyalty to Jesus is what happens when you see how good he is. And love of others is what happens when that goodness invades your heart. And it begins to shape the way you see other people. This is the kingdom lifestyle. This is the framework. It's not a formula. You can't apply this today and see results in 36 weeks. But you can build a life 
around loyalty to Jesus and love of others that will transform your circle of influence as the Holy Spirit co-creates with you the life you are called to. The question now, at this opening of our series, like I said, we're going to unpack exactly what loyalty to Jesus looks like, the ways of Jesus, the expectations of Jesus, the right way to live. We're going to unpack that over the next few weeks. But the question for each of us today is simple. Are you willing to build a life in this framework? Or is your loyalty to Jesus not what you thought it was? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that even as we talk about this, man, I have got people that I have not been loving to that I can think of right now. And I have got ways that I have not been loyal to you that I can think of right now. But I thank you that first off, we know we live in your forgiveness. That you're not trying to punish us or shame us. You're just inviting us into what's right and what's good. God, I ask that you would give us a clear picture of how good you are so that a loyalty to you is manifested in our lives. So that we live loyally. Out of goodness and out of love, not out of shame and guilt. I ask that that loyalty to you would would become a lens through which we view the world. That we would see the world through your love for others and it would cause us to be self-sacrificially loving, to value others over ourselves. And God, I ask that you would do us the grace and the mercy of showing us just a hint of the transformation that is inevitably taking place in our circles of influence. We love you, Jesus. And we trust you that it's your work and your mission. You invite us to partner with you in it, but it's your responsibility as well. So we have no shame and no guilt, just trust and joy. We love you, Jesus. Amen.